All right, uh, this is a little audience participation thing I'm going to do with you here. It's not dancing, uh, not nearly as good as dancing, but it's still audience participation, so don't just sit on your hands for this one. I'm going to say a phrase, and I'm going to see if you can finish it. Uh, Time is money. Yes. Boy, you are bright. You are so bright. And that's a phrase, time is money, that almost any person over the age of about 13 in our nation can repeat because it is such an intense part of our hustle and bustle culture, isn't it? Time is money. And because of this bedrock cultural belief that time is money, we spend endless hours, we read countless books, we attend expensive seminars, all on the subjects of managing time, using time efficiently, making profitable use of your time, and all of that stuff contributes to all of us dealing with all manner of time pressure, doesn't it? Can you feel it? Time pressure. We're all trying to cram more into our days. We get up earlier, we work later, we take work home with us. We tote a laptop around with us all the time, so work is always just a few keystrokes away. Any time of the night or day, we phone people while we drive. These days, we can check and send email while we're flying. We are never out of touch. We eat breakfast, lunches, and dinners with clients, all in search of an increasing bottom line. Why? Because it's all about performance, isn't it? It is all about performance, performance, performance. We're on the treadmill. Just perform. Because you see, if we perform exceedingly well, then we're promoted, right? Then our compensation, it increases. So does our standing then in the eyes of countless onlookers. And that's just the way the world works, isn't it? It's just the way it goes. Let me put it to you in automotive terms. Maybe you're more of a motorhead. Let me put it to you uh, this way. Most standard automobile engines, engines that are uh, in my F-350 Ford van that hauls 15 people around, it turns at about 4,000 RPMs, kind of like your car does. 4,000 RPMs most of the time. However, do you know that there are actually race car engines that spin about 10,000 RPMs, 10,000 revolutions per minute. Maybe you're a big indie car fan. Maybe you got to go to the race last weekend. And if you did, you saw 10,000 RPMs in action, didn't you? And here's what this time in money culture screams into our ears. You, me, us, you should rev your performance. You should rev your productivity. You should rev your output put at 10,000 plus, if you can, RPMs from the moment your feet hit the floor in the morning, and then you should keep the accelerator of your life absolutely floored at 10,000 plus RPMs until you collapse into bed at night. And that's what the culture screams in our ear. And lots and lots and lots of us, we can fully identify with that, can't we? Now, running at that kind of intense pace, it can be incredibly rewarding can it? You know the feeling. Some of us even like the feeling of adrenaline coursing through our veins. You're on a roll. Your motor is racing faster and faster. It's fun, exciting. It's exhilarating even. And you know what else? The 10,000 RPM kind of life, it leaves precious little time for spending quiet moments talking to God and listening to his voice. There's no time. There's no space. There's no quiet And so you see, it's sort of out of that milieu that this new series that we're launching today, it's called Yes, I Can Hear You Now. It's out of that that this is bubbled up out of. And Journey, I want you to know that I carry a very real burden for myself and for our church community in the realm of prayer. 
Because I see the relentless pace that we're all operating at. Life never has a dull moment, does it? That means life doesn't have any reflective moments either in this time is money culture that we're living in. And Journey, we must step off the treadmill, if even occasionally, the performance treadmill, we must step off and we must ask ourselves, where does the still small voice of God fit into our increasingly hectic lives? Where and when? When and how do we give God an all-access pass to our hearts and lives, inviting him to lead and guide and correct and affirm and just plain pour himself into us? And if that never ever happens because the accelerator of our lives is floored at 10,000 RPMs, how in the world can we ever expect or hope to live the authentic Christian life that God has invited us to live? How in the world? And Journey, the authentic Christian life is honestly, it's something I dream about for us as a community. That five or ten years from now, when we sort of step back from the canvas that God is painting our church on, and it is God who is painting on the canvas of our church, making us who we are and what we're about. And so when we step back, that we would actually be authentic followers of Jesus Christ. That when people in the community, when they think of Journey Church, one of the words that comes to their mind might be authentic. Authentic. And authenticity is a unique thing. It isn't just knowing all the major Christian doctrines in our head. It isn't just, quote, going to church on the weekends. Man, I wish we could scrub those words from our vocabulary. Going to church, because you can't go somewhere that you are. You are the church. We are the church, right? Going to church, like, let's just not say it anymore, please. That's not authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity isn't just marching in a single file line with the rest of the church. That isn't authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity isn't even about just putting serving towels over our arms, meeting the needs of our community, meeting the needs of our church, meeting the needs of the under-resourced all around the world even. The authentic Christian life, rather, is a, get this, supernatural relationship with the one true, living, dynamic, communicating God of the universe, maker of heaven and earth, which means really that the heart and soul of the authentic Christian life is taking our foot out of the accelerator so that the pace of our lives can idle down so that we can learn to hear the voice of God, and then so that we can actually step out, so that we can boldly go and do everything that he's asking and inviting us to do. Yes, I can hear you now. And here's what I know about us, or at least what I think I know about us and prayer. For many, many of us, prayer is nowhere near a joy, is it? Nowhere near a joy. Instead, for a whole bunch of us, prayer is more like a burden, Something we don't like, we don't enjoy it. And some of you here, you're going to be embarking on a message series on prayer for the month of June, and you just assume check out because you think some preacher is going to pull out some big stick and start whacking on you for not praying more and enough or with enough faith. And So I'm not going to do that, by the way, because here's the deal. We've all, me included, failed in prayer, haven't we? We've all, me, maybe especially, have failed in prayer. Just the other day, somebody asked me, they said, Brian, what do you think your greatest failure in life is? It's a unique question. And in an instant, I answered that I haven't prayed more. That I have not prayed more. And get this, please. I didn't just say that because it was the expected or the correct sort of Christianese kind of answer. I said it because I actually mean it. I actually think about it often. 
It actually keeps me awake some nights. And how many of us have done the exact same thing? How many of us have felt guilty because we haven't prayed more enough or in more, with more faith? How many of us, when we do pray, we worry that we might not be doing it correctly? Or how many of us, when we pray, we sort of utter these wooden, lifeless prayers? We're just repeating words we learned all the way back in Sunday school when we were growing up, repeating words that don't actually engage our hearts and minds whatsoever. We're just mouthing words. But see, all of that stuff is the precise opposite of everything that prayer is to be in the life of the follower of Jesus Christ. Thus, we're embarking on the study of prayer for the month of June. Yes, I can hear you now. Made sense to me that we would just start at the top or maybe the bottom, however you want to look at it, and examine why in the world we even do pray. And so let's uh, unpack what I consider to be five of the very best reasons why we pray in the first place. These are all on your notes page. You can fill in the blanks as we move along. First, prayer is a privilege, number one. Prayer is a privilege. It just is. Uh, A few years ago, some of you might uh, know this, or maybe you were around back in the Heritage Christian days. Uh, A few years ago, a United States Supreme Court justice, a guy named Antonin Scalia, attended one of Journey's weekend worship experiences. The associate justice, Scalia, he's friends with a friend of mine, and that friend brought him one Saturday night, sort of slipped him in the back, you know. I'll never, ever forget uh, one guy who I was talking to afterwards. He said, I got up during that uh, words of life time, you know. We used to do that sort of stand and meet and greet time. We used to do it every weekend uh, back then. Now we just do it sometimes, and that makes some of you grumpy, but I'm sorry about that. Uh, We do it sometimes, though. And And he said, we stood up during that words of life time, and I turned around, and to my amazement, there was Justice Scalia standing behind me in church, and he kind of did this like double take, and he got to meet him and talk with him, and he thought that was real cool. And as I was uh, talking with Justice Scalia uh, that weekend, I got to hang on with him a couple of times. I distinctly remember saying to him on more than one occasion, you know, it's a real privilege for me to meet you and talk to you, sir, your honor, whatever you call them. And it was, I meant that. It absolutely was a sincere and distinct privilege to have met and talked to him. It's a big deal. There's nine Supreme Court justices. It's the highest court in the land. They preside over some of the most significant legal and public policy decisions our country has ever faced or ever will face. And do you know there's only been 112 Supreme Court justices since our nation was founded? Only 112 of these folks. And so I'm getting to talk to like one in 112. It's kind of a cool deal. Now, get this. The privilege of meeting and talking to An associate justice of the United States Supreme Court is nothing, absolutely nothing, compared with the privilege of meeting and talking to and listening in on the voice of the God of the universe, is it? And just pick, you pick the coolest, most important, biggest deal person you've ever met and talked to or want to meet and talk to, and it is absolutely nothing compared with the privilege of conversing with the God who made you, the God who loves you, the God who sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you. Nothing even comes close to the privilege that is. And maybe you're a person who uh, has talked to these sort of uh, big deal kind of people, I call them. If you've done that, you know that there's always kind of a line of people waiting to talk with them, right? And so you stand there and you wait and wait and then finally it's your turn and you get to, there's nothing of the sort with God, nothing even close. There's no line, no standing and waiting, no take a number thing. It is instant, always on communication with him. 
and he's never too busy, he's never too hurried, he never has to cut you off to get to something or someone more important than you. You talk about a distinct privilege and honor. That's what prayer is. And we pray, we should pray, because it is a privilege to converse with the God of the universe. The second reason we pray is because God actually desires fellowship with us. God actually desires fellowship with us. You can substitute the word conversation or engagement in place of fellowship if you don't know what that means. God actually desires to converse with us. He desires to fellowship with us. Like, let that kind of blow your mind for a moment. The God of the universe, maker of heaven and earth, desires to converse with and know you and spend time with you and time with me. Go back to the Justice Scalia or any other big deal person you've ever met or talked to or want to meet and talk to. There's something very interesting about these sort of big deal kind of folks. And I realize it's very dangerous to stereotype, but uh, I'm going to paint with a broad brush. Just go with me, if you will. You know that most of these big deal people, they do not actually want to talk to the general public. You recognize that? Most of them don't really want to talk to us. Honestly, they, they just don't. They're way too busy. They're way too hurried. They're tugged in like 16 million different directions. A whole bunch of them have real and legitimate security concerns around them. Most of them keep a schedule that you cannot believe. You talk about 10,000 plus RPMs, and that keeps them scheduled down to the minute, which means that them stopping to talk to you or talk to me, it's just making them late for the next thing, so they have to apologize to someone else. Many, many big deal folks, they, it's a nuisance to talk to the general public. It just is. I can guarantee, just in his example, that Justice Scalia did not ever say to himself, boy, I cannot wait to talk to this punk kid pastor of this startup church that meets in this rented, way too hot gymnasium in Bozeman, Montana, where the music is way too loud, and I don't know the words. I guarantee he never said that. And I, I don't mean any disrespect whatsoever, but he did not aspire to talk to me when I met him that weekend when he was here. I kind of stepped into his face and talked to him at my choosing, not his. And in stark contrast to all that, the God of the universe aspires to converse with you and with me. John 4.23 affirms that God is actually looking to converse to commune with us. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there, you can look on the screens. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Check this out. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. He's looking for us to approach him in prayer, to converse with him, to commune with him, to listen in to him, because you see, our relationship with God dies without regular communication, doesn't it? The flame that is supposed to be our faith in God, it just gets extinguishes without regular communication with him, which is precisely what prayer is. It is conversing with God. How many of you know that your marriage dies out without regular, intentional, purposeful communication with your spouse? Some of you are living in that world right now. The communication walls are way up and you just need to start one brick at a time, pulling them down, pulling them down, tearing the bricks down. And your communication with your spouse probably needs to increase, probably like 
all of our communication with God needs to increase. Your relationship with your friends die out without regular and intentional communication with them. It works the exact same way with God. And he's given us this privilege of prayer because he loves us. He longs for our fellowship. He wants it so much that he goes looking for it. He looks for it. And so we pray. And we pray because God desires fellowship. He desires to converse with us. The third reason that we pray is because prayer indicates a stand-in-the-gap kind of heart. Prayer indicates a stand-in-the-gap kind of heart. This verse will be very familiar to some of you. Ezekiel 22.30, you can follow along on the screens. Ezekiel 22.30. I looked for someone who might rebuild the wall of righteousness that guards the land. I searched for someone to stand in Old Navy. Sorry. My bad. That was a really bad joke. I'm sorry. You pay me more, you'll get better jokes, all right? Kidding about that too. I should just stick to the script, shouldn't I? I searched for someone to stand in the gap. Did you get the gap Old Navy thing? Some of you didn't. I think, you know, one parent company owns both stores. Ours closed. No more Old Navy. So now we got the gap. Which is good because that's where we're supposed to stand. I searched for someone to stand in the gap in the wall so I wouldn't have to destroy the land. But I found no one. The voice of God. I found no one. Now, if you read the whole of Ezekiel 22, it was a very current indictment of God's people, the entire nation of Israel, in that period of time. If you read the whole chapter, you'll discover that it is a litany of the sins of God's people, the sins of the nation of Israel, and it is a gnarly list. Their list of misdoings include bloodshed, idolatry, misuse of power, ill treatment of various social groups, desecration of Sabbath, paganism, sexual misconduct, bribery and extortion, and simply ignoring God. Does that sound familiar to you? And verse 30 is the testimony that God was searching for someone who would build up the moral and the spiritual wall because the moral and spiritual wall was Israel's true protection from any external threat whatsoever. And the Lord was looking. He was searching the land, his eyes going to and fro for a national leader, someone who would personally intervene where the spiritual and moral wall had fallen into decay. Someone who would actually step up and step out and put their personal life on the line. Someone who would beseech the Lord to spare the city, spare the nation, spare the people, who would match that prayer with mighty works of reformation, behavioral reformation, heart reformation. You see, God was absolutely threatening Israel's destruction, and God knew that there existed a caliber of leader who could avert that destruction, but he couldn't find him. He couldn't find her. He couldn't find a soul who could or would fill the role. And so you see, part of the reason that we pray is because when we do, we're communicating to God that we are one of his faithful people who are united with him and other followers of Jesus Christ in the effort to resist evil, to turn back the tide of darkness. We're stepping up and we're saying, I'm in. God, I am in. I'm standing in the gap. And when we pray, 
What we're saying is, God, I care about this as much as you care about this, and I'm putting my personal well-being on the line to bring it about. You know what else you're saying in prayer? And this is powerful. You're actually acknowledging in prayer that you and me and us, that we're part of the sin problem. That we're not above it, we're not beyond it. We're in the thick of it. I, God, am part of the sin problem. And at the same time, I want to be very much a part of the prayerful and spiritual solution that includes total spiritual reconstruction, revival. And it starts right here. It starts with me. That's what prayer is communicating to God. I'm in on that. God, I care as much as you care. Prayer indicates a stand-in-the-gap kind of heart. The fourth of the five reasons we pray, this is big, is that prayer has an incredible power to arrest and to change the purposes of God. You talk about mind-blowing. Check out Genesis 18, starting in verse 16. It's quite a unique account. Uh, The stage is that these three guys, they drop in on Abraham and Sarah for a meal. And they're three sort of unique characters. Uh, There's a lot of mystery in the sacred text about who these dudes are who dropped in on Abraham and Sarah. And they ate dinner. And then we pick up the story in verse 16. And the men got up from their meal and they looked out toward Sodom. Not a good place to be looking, is it? And as they left, Abraham went with them to send them on their way. Should I hide my plan from Abraham, the Lord asked. For Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. That's getting all the way back. It's kind of a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant that God made to Abraham, right? And the covenant included that there would be a people, a mighty nation, descendants as numerous as the sands on the seashore, and that there would be a land, a people and a land. And God sort of restates it there at the beginning. And so the Lord told Abraham, we pick it up, I have heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. And it was You read about Sodom and Gomorrah, and it was so gnarly. And so check this out. God says, I'm going down there to see if their actions are as wicked as I've heard. He's going down there. And if you recall, the Tower of Babel, it sounds eerily familiar to what God did there, right? When he said, I'm going to go down to the Tower of Babel, and I'm going to check it out. I'm going to see what's going on there. He kind of does a similar thing here. And he says, if they're as wicked as I've heard, if they're not, I want to know. I want to know. The other men turned and headed toward Sodom, but the Lord remained there with Abraham. And Abraham approached him and he said, will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? It's kind of a loaded question to ask God, isn't it? Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose, Abraham says, you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why, you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Surely you wouldn't do that, God. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Wow, quite a statement to make to God, isn't it? And the Lord replied, If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city for their sake. Abraham's going like, whoa, okay. Look what he does next. So Abraham spoke again. 
since I have begun, let me speak further to my Lord, even though I am but dust and ashes. He has an accurate view of himself. I am but dust and ashes. Suppose there are only 45 righteous people rather than 50. Kind of puts his toe in the water. 45 rather than 50. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 righteous people there. Hmm. Abraham's going like, well, this is going pretty good. Then Abraham pressed his request further. Suppose there are only 40. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of the 40. Then Abraham goes on. He's kind of on a roll here. Please, don't be angry, my Lord, Abraham pleaded. Let me speak. Suppose only 30 righteous people are found. Ooh, dropped by 10 that time. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it if I find 30. And Abraham said, since I have dared to speak to the Lord, let me continue. Suppose there are only 20. And the Lord replied, I will not destroy it for the sake of the 20. Wow. Finally, Abraham said, Lord, uh, please don't be angry with me if I speak one more time. I just, things are going pretty good here, so I'm, I'm going to say it again. Suppose only 10 are found there. And the Lord replied, then I will not destroy it for the sake of the ten. And when the Lord had finished his conversation with Abraham, he went on his way, and Abraham returned to his tent. Notice, interestingly, who had the last word there? The Lord did. The Lord had the last word. And so you see, the, the summation of that narrative is that God tells Abraham of his plan to destroy the two cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you know what happens? That wrecks Abraham. That absolutely breaks his heart. He's crushed. And so Abraham does what? He begins to intercede. He begins to cry out on behalf of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he discovers something quite incredible. Is that with each ask that he makes, God actually gives ground. God actually gives ground. And things change. And God moves. God moves. And for a whole bunch of us, we don't pray because we're absolutely convinced that everything in the universe is already set and that things cannot be changed. And so we say, if everything is set and if nothing can be changed, why bother praying? Why bother? It doesn't really matter, we say. And while it is absolutely true that God does know absolutely the outcome of every single thing, he has allowed us the incredible freedom to help alter the course of events. Did you hear that? He has allowed us the freedom to alter the course of events. And you see it all throughout the sacred text of the Bible. It is absolutely crystal clear that God wants and longs for our participation in being difference makers in the world, especially in the realm of prayer. Biblical prayers like Abraham and Moses and countless others all prayed as if their prayers could and would make an objective difference. And you notice something about those guys when they pray and gals when they pray is that they rarely, if ever, tagged on the sentence at the end, Lord, if it is your will. We do that, don't we? We pray for big, big stuff and then we sort of disqualify it by saying, comma, Lord, if it is your will. Biblical prayers, they don't do that. They didn't do that. They boldly stepped in and they stepped up and they asked for incredible stuff. And they didn't say, Lord, if that's the way you want it. No, they said, 
please, please God, do that. When the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he announces that we are co-laborers with God, us, co-laborers with God. And what he's doing there is proclaiming is that we're actually working with God to determine the outcome of events. Co-laborers, us. Little us, co-laborers with God. And you see, God has chosen time and again to work through the prayers of his people. And prayer has changed and prayer continues to change the world. Listen to this. Did you know, for instance, that people who pray, people of prayer, they actually, medical research tells us people who pray live longer, healthier lives. And that's not just a statement of pastors making. Duke University study uncovered that one. Duke University, prestigious place. Check this one out. People who pray at least once daily recover more quickly from common illnesses. They have a lower rate of cancer, a lower rate of heart disease than those who do not include daily prayer time. You can go to the gym, and you should. I should. But you can also pray. You can also pray. And that stat comes from the International Journal of Psychiatric Medicine. Not a podunk outfit. Another Duke University study showed that heart patients who receive prayer, have 50 to 100% fewer side effects than those patients not prayed for. 50 to 100% fewer side effects. And then in all kinds of blind studies done in a variety of contexts, patients who were being secretly prayed for by a group of people fared much better than those in a control group not being prayed for. That's a very mean experiment, by the way. Really, they should have kept that one to like lab rats because that's mean. We're praying for them and they're getting better and we're not praying for you. And well, what do you know? You're not getting better. Mean. The point is that this is an incredibly freeing truth, an incredibly empowering truth. Prayer changes the world. And that is an incredibly weighty responsibility, church. An incredibly weighty responsibility because you see people of prayer are actually working with God to determine the future prayer has an incredible power to arrest and change the purposes of God and fifth finally on my list of reasons why we pray God says ask it's really simple God says ask look at Psalm 2 8 with me first two words only ask. God says ask. Just ask. Just pray. Just ask. And check it out. And I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. Only ask. And then the New Testament, John 15, 7. But if you, rem- these are the words of Jesus. If you remain in me, my words remain in you. You may ask for anything you want. And a whole sermon could and probably should be preached on that. You may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. And the takeaway from those texts is this. God is willing to give, but we haven't even asked so much of the time. We haven't even bothered to ask. Billy Graham said it this way, heaven is full of answers to prayers which no one ever even bothered to pray and ask. 
God says, just ask me. Just ask me. Just pray. Just ask. So we pray because God says for us to ask. And you know as well as I do that the brokenness of this world can be absolutely overwhelming, can it? Like crushingly so. On more than one occasion, just in the past week, some of the most painful stuff that you can possibly imagine has landed squarely in front of me in the lives of people who I love and care about very, very deeply. The kind of stuff where you just have to sit back and go, oh no, not that, not, not that again. The brokenness of this world is absolutely overwhelming. Stuff that spins our heads and splinters our hearts going on around us every single day. And in the midst of all of that turmoil journey, we must be people who take our foot off of the accelerator of our lives and who live more and more and more in the presence of God. If there was ever in this world a season of time that we've needed to be people of prayer, it is absolutely right now. It is absolutely right now. And the only question that remains is, will you do it? Will you do it? Will you take your foot off the 10,000 RPM accelerator of your life and will you get before God in prayer and will you ask him? Will you ask him to move and shake and stir and ask him to use you and use us to help fix everything that's wrong in this very, very wrong world? And what we know is that he will answer you and what we know is that he will guide you, and what we know is that he will give a peace, what we know is that he will cause his light to burn ever so bright in our lives, and he'll provide us his power via his Holy Spirit to be about his work. He will. Church, we just gotta ask. We have just got to ask. Will you take your stuff and set it aside, and will you just go to prayer? Just close your eyes and bow your heads and just get still and quiet before the Lord, the God of the universe, the one who made you, who loves you, who sent his son to die for you.